1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Professor Jonathan Morris about his book, Coffee, A Global History, which was published in 2019 by Reaction Books. Jonathan is a research professor at University of Hertfordshire. Jonathan, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Uh, I'd first like to uh, start with um, a bit of background about yourself and also your research.
1: So about myself, it kind
0: of runs into the research.
1: So I'm a historian, really, I grew up as a historian of modern Italy. That's what I trained as. And I um, started work in Italy and one of the sort of ways that I in fact got to learn Italian was hanging around in coffee bars. Um, Basically, I kind of learned to drink coffee in Italy. And then in the sort of the late nineties, I realized that Italian style coffee was becoming much more common as a result of the kind of the coffee shop culture in uh, the UK. And so that started me thinking about the history of coffee. I started work originally on a project on the spread of Italian style coffee around the world that was called Cappuccino Conquests. And um, it became apparent to me that really to understand coffee I had to understand the global history of coffee that I needed to get a a real understanding both of that global history of all the different elements of coffee. And so in a way, this book is kind of my attempt to to pull all of that together and to give a sort of an overview of the whole of coffee history uh, that enables people to navigate between the kind of, you know, the balance of uh, production and consumption, the, the different Um, forms of coffee across the centuries, and to use that as a way of situating their own particular interests in coffee in the way that I situated mine within that wider context.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. And um, at the beginning of your book, you talk about uh, coffee's, uh, quote, foundation myth, and uh, also about how for uh, at least the first 200 years of coffee's existence, uh, it was exclusively consumed by Muslims. So could you tell us a bit uh, about this transformation of coffee from what you call, uh, quote, wine of Islam to a uh, sort of colonial good in Europe?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, let's set aside coffee's origin myth for a minute but uh, and go with the coffee's real, um, as far as we know, real roots. So uh, coffee... Grows uh, wild, really. It's a, it, it's a plant that primarily grows in East Africa, in Asia, uh, not in East Asia. In East Africa, in Ethiopia, is what I want to say. And um, we know that it was kind of foraged by uh, Ethiopians. That was basically an understory plant in the jungle. What happened in around the 1450s is that um, coffee as a product began to be imported into the Yemen. Uh, We know this from the first manuscripts about coffee, which date to the 1500s, Arabic manuscripts. And the reason that they suggest that this was, was that coffee was being used for the preparation of a beverage uh, that itself was consumed primarily by Sufis. Uh, and this beverage was known as keisha, and it's made by using the dried coffee fruit, and uh, if you like, the coffee husk. So coffee is uh, produces a red cherry. That red cherry contains the seed that uh, we now refer to as the coffee bean. Uh, but the original consumption was of the whole cherry, dried, and used to prepare this keisha beverage. Keisha was used in ceremonies, particularly the kind of the night time devotions of the Sufis. The Sufis are very um, uh, kind of mystic uh, meditative sect. And uh, from there, it became more a social beverage because through various uh, different contestations, it was established that it was a legitimate beverage for Muslims to consume. And so it became possible to be a good Muslim and also drink coffee, and to consume coffee in coffee houses, therefore, which created a kind of public sphere. And for the first 200 years or so, therefore, of coffee's known history, it is in effect a Muslim beverage. During this period, it's primarily consumed around the Red Sea, it spreads gradually up from Yemen, up the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it, uh, Yemen came under originally the influence of the Mamluks in Egypt, and the Mamluks themselves were then ousted from the area and uh, by the Ottomans. The Ottomans uh, with uh, brought co- coffee to Constantinople, and as effectively coffee moves up through the Arabian Peninsula, so it also becomes more like the beverage that we know today. Uh, that's to say that instead of using the, the whole of the fruit and creating this uh, quiche-like beverage, increasingly, they used simply the beans and roasted the beans to create a beverage like coffee. So up until the, well, we know that coffee, enters Europe or is seen in Europe from about the 1570s. It's observed being used by uh, Ottoman merchants uh, in places such as Venice. But actually, during the 17th century, all coffee is still supplied essentially to Europe. That coffee that gets to Europe comes from mocha. It's controlled uh, by the Ottomans and by... Uh, it all shipped through the port of Almorquer and Hodeidah. What happens is that as coffee becomes somewhat more popular, there are attempts by the Europeans to obtain coffee as a plant, uh, which they eventually succeed in doing, and that is then planted uh, originally by the Dutch in uh, Java, and uh, then by both the Dutch and the French in the Caribbean. And so by the first half of the 1700s, we're seeing the the rapid breakthrough of um, uh, non-Yemeni, non-Ottoman controlled coffee, and the expansion of production in Java and the Caribbean, so that uh, coffee by the middle of the 18th century is very much a colonial beverage.
0: Okay, And uh, you, you you mentioned uh, social aspects of coffee and you also mentioned coffee houses. Uh, and I uh, assume that with the spread of coffee throughout Europe uh, at this time, coffee houses also started to emerge in Europe as well. And uh, coffee houses, and correct me if I'm wrong, but depending on the time and the place where important social, uh, cultural, uh, intellectual, even political establishments, Uh, So how did the history of coffee and coffee houses uh, unfold in relation to one another in Europe?
1: Yeah, it's a a very interesting story in as much as that coffee houses emerge in a slightly different pattern to the way that coffee itself spreads. Uh, So the first sort of documented coffee houses uh, are actually uh, open in in the UK, uh, in London. Uh, the first one that we know for certain is that of uh, between sort of 1652 and 1654, uh, a man who was known as Pasqua Rose, who was uh, usually described as an Armenian. That's to say, he was a Christian uh, from the uh, Ottoman Empire who had emigrated to uh, the UK, had been bought, in fact, come to uh, London with. Um, a merchant who had been operating in Istanbul. And um, Rosé established this sort of coffee stall uh, selling coffee in the St. Michael's Courtyard in London. And within a couple of years, had actually transformed that into a coffee house. Now, I say this is interesting because uh, clearly that's a long time after the first coffee is being seen in places like Venice and Marseille. And um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that whereas coffee uh, originally is seen as a sort of a medicinal beverage, it's largely controlled by the apothecary trade. Um, in London of that time, the 1650s, we see the decline, obviously, of the power of the guilds. This is the Commonwealth era the overthrow, or, or the, you know, the era of Oliver Cromwell, and uh, it's something that becomes. Um, easier to set up a coffee house and it becomes the kind of place where people meet to discuss a variety of issues including of course politics now that's a format that in fact coffee kind of adheres to as it spreads as the coffee house itself spreads through europe so the coffee house kind of models on the original uh middle eastern model of being a place in which people are able to sit and talk and to do so by being out of the home to be able to somewhat avoid the constraints of rank and the constraints of um not so much respectability because the coffee house can be respectable, but to avoid, if you like, the conventions whereby they would necessarily be able to converse with strangers, they would be able to exchange ideas. Coffee houses rapidly start assuming various different guises so that some become sort of commercial places. We uh, famously know that the uh, in London, you know, the, the stock exchange, uh, the forerunner of the stock exchange is a coffee house which, uh, which is called Jonathan's. Uh, famously, Lloyd's Shipping Brokers uh, originates in a coffee house. These are places where people meet to exchange information, to exchange knowledge, and to create business. Other coffee houses become places of cultural exchange, um, others become places of political exchange. So, the coffee house provides that kind of public format. And because the, uh, the sense is that coffee is a stimulant rather than a kind of mental suppressant in the way that alcohol is, coffee forms a or takes a role of being seen as the kind of thing over which one could socialize and exchange ideas in that way. Um, so that sort of notion of the coffee house as a centre for exchange and meeting place actually remains rooted for quite a long time. So you were asking about the sort of the political aspects of the coffee house. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that, uh, you know, the French uh, revolutionaries and French revolutionaries in the various revolutions, not just 1789, but 1848 and so forth, would meet in the coffee houses. The Italian uh, students who were uh, adherents to the Risorgimento in the 19th century were meeting in coffee houses. So they're, they're seen as a focal place. And of course, they're also a place that therefore can at times appear threatening. So if we go back uh, to the time of Charles II, uh, immediate restoration in the UK, so back to the 1660s, um, Charles II twice actually wanted to close down coffee houses and had to be reminded that not only would that uh, distress the people at large, his own supporters had used coffee houses during the period of the Civil War as a way of meeting. So I don't know if
0: that that helps you, Amir, but that's a sort of a a riff on the coffee house for you there. Yes, no, it absolutely does. And uh, is it after uh, this period that coffee uh, sort of becomes... Uh, an industrial product, if you will? Or does that come after that?
1: Yeah, so that's a a somewhat later period. So, I mean, what what I do in the book is divide coffee into five eras. And we talk about the, the wine of Islam, that first 200 years, the period of essentially coffee being what I would call a colonial good. And then there's this phase at which coffee becomes an industrial uh, product. And it becomes an industrial product really in, I would say from about the mid 19th century. So the origins of this certainly lie in the expansion of production and its transportation into new areas. Uh, But there's a specific context here, and that is the context of the relationship between Brazil and the United States. So Brazil from around the 1850s becomes the world's leading producer of coffee. Um, And the reason in a sense for that is that by increasing its output, uh, which Brazil is able to do as it pushes out what it calls the coffee frontier. So as um, colonial settlers essentially move further and further into uh, the interior, uh, creating new coffee plantations, matched by what is going on primarily in the United States, where you're getting the growth of a much bigger market for coffee, driven by the application of more industrial processes to coffee. So although uh, until this point, coffee has been largely roasted in the home, for example. So you buy your coffee, uh, what we call green, you just buy buy the beans and individuals are roasting it. What happens in this period is the rise of industrial roasting, the rise, if you like, of coffee roasting on its own as an industry, so that uh, in the grocery stores, rather than having the purchases of green coffee, now people are purchasing um, packaged coffee, pre-roasted coffee. And that becomes uh, a market that can be expanded as production is uh, expanded and the price through volume can be held low. Now, there are further aspects to that to do, particularly with the way that, um, well, first of all, in Brazil, in the way that labor is structured, the labor force in Brazil is originally uh, a labor force of enslaved people, but actually the big expansion of Brazil as a producing area takes place subsequent to that in the sense that uh, most of the uh, labor is provided by a new sort of emigre uh, labor force that's imported from Europe under sort of conditions of um, what we might call um, not quite indentured labor, but uh, debt labor so that um, you, you are transported out, you are given a period in which you work on a plantation but have your own small area and you have to pay off the debt through your wages uh, to the plantation of your transport. The result is again, so low labor costs, therefore low price, therefore the ability with that low cost coffee uh, to continue to grow the market in America. And of course, America has that great expansion in population in the later 19th century. And that creates that mass market that, that, that drives the industrialization of coffee
0: and uh, there's instant coffee in all this i mean when does instant coffee come into being jonathan okay so
1: instant coffee is a slightly later development instant coffee is really the outcome so there, there are there are all kinds of things that are known as instant coffee we know that there was something that was that was called instant coffee in, in the uh, first world war Uh, supply to American troops but the reality is that the first instant coffee that becomes um, a kind of a well-known product comes around just around the time of the second world war and there's a very specific context to this we talked about Brazil and the way that Brazil expanded production but by the 1930s hit by the great depression Brazil has far too much coffee can't sell it all on uh, the international markets and they look for other ways and better ways of uh, using the coffee, one of which is to contact uh, the Nestle Nestle Corporation and see if they can find another way of packaging coffee that would make it more uh, accessible. And uh, the end result of that is instant coffee. But by the time that this uh, is produced, uh, we're just about to go into the Second World War. And in fact, this again becomes a rather effective way for troops to carry coffee. And coffee and war and coffee and troops go together quite well, um, in the sense that uh, coffee fulfills a double function. It keeps your troops alert. It uh, is uh, a stimulant in that sense, but it also is is a warming drink and it's a comfort drink. So for all of these reasons, having coffee in the ration pack, having coffee with your uh, troops is, is very useful. And the uh, instant coffee is a perfect formula for that in the sense that it's the lightest way to carry coffee and the easiest way to brew it. Subsequent to the Second World War, uh, instant coffee becomes more of a commercial project. And it really breaks through in Europe, even more than the United States, significantly more than the United States, in fact. Uh, And again, I think it breaks through primarily in, The context of economies that are developing into more mass consumer economies, in air, in contexts where coffee has been previously an inaccessible or an unexplored beverage, Uh, and the classic example of that is actually uh, the UK, where you know instant coffee really captures the UK market very quickly, uh, to the point that it easily. becomes about 80% of the UK market. The other thing to say about instant coffee is that it takes the first, it takes a lot of the production of a new form of coffee. Uh, Up until this point, all coffee uh, plants were usually what is known as uh, from the Arabica species. Uh, There is a new coffee plant called a robusta, that uh, whose growth again spreads substantively really in the immediate uh, post-Second World War period, usually connected actually to uh, the plantation of coffee, both the replantation of coffee in East Asia and in Africa. And many of the colonial now, ex-colonial countries uh, import that coffee and that coffee also goes into instant coffee. It's a cheaper form of coffee, it's a more, um, let's say, assertive taste, uh, and therefore is actually better suited to instant. Um, so you see this kind of nexus of things going together there robusta on the one hand, convenience on the other, growth of the market coming together to make instant coffee quite a powerful product, a powerful player.
0: That's fascinating, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, And uh, there's a term that we often hear when talking about coffee culture, especially nowadays, and uh, you actually talk about this in your book, and that's uh, third wave coffee. Uh, So what does third wave coffee actually mean? I'm laughing Amir because I'm
1: I'm uh, trying to write an article about that right now. <laughs> so um, third wave coffee. So the, the theory of third wave is, is roughly this, uh, which is that um, the growth of mass commodity coffee provoked a reaction. And that reaction was known as, as the specialty coffee movement. And this really goes back, I guess, to about the 70s in the United States, where some smaller coffee roasters and producers were keen that rather that effectively they saw the ever cheapening of the quality of coffee uh, produced by the mass roasters and figured that the only way to compete was actually to prove, uh, to kind of position coffee as a uh, a premium good against that, so that rather than try to compete on price with these roasters, they would compete on quality. And the movement kind of began with these sort of pioneer people, but very soon they moved from selling uh coffee, effectively coffee beans for the home, to preparing coffee in coffee shops as basically espresso beverages. So this is the kind of the Starbucks model, if you like. And this became known as the second wave. So this is the uh, a new wave of coffee that, if, that, that I would say basically repositions coffee as a premium good and as a lifestyle good. So that kind of transforms things in the 1980s. Uh, basically the Starbucks format goes around the world, 1980s, 1990s. By the 2000s, many of those people who were the kind of the original specialty pioneers and those who were attracted to those elements of the specialty movement were reacting against the way that the coffee shop chains had kind of turned that into another business format. And so they started talking about a third wave of coffee, a wave of coffee that would concentrate solely on coffee quality, that would continue to have coffee as the premium product, but was less about enjoying the coffee house and enjoying the coffee syrups or enjoying your froth milk, but actually gets you back into looking at the coffee itself. Coffee that sort of uh, usually had um, much more identified, much more closely identified origins. So this is the kind of the coffee as wine idea. So, you know, not just coffee from, um, Brazil or Colombia or some blend of coffee but coffee that comes from a designated region quite often even down to a designated farm or designated cooperative and really prizing the qualities of that Uh, if that coffee could meet a sort of um, a taste test for want of a better word, so if it was uh, if it had high quality, if it was quality in the cup, then they would use this as the kind of the premium coffee. So third wave coffee is that sort of movement, which is the sort of it's the kind of you know the third stage after mass coffee and Starbucks uh, style coffee shops. It's this sort of you know high end. Uh, I almost think of it as like a kind of. Um, the fashion that it's like the couture fashion world sitting above the mass market, and the two do interact. Trends from one go through to the other, but the specialty coffee and this third wave coffee sits at the very top of that. Uh, so, I hope I've convinced you of that because that's uh, that's the coffee you should be drinking.
0: Yeah, and, and um, this is kind of a you know follow up question to the previous question. You mentioned that you are uh, working on. Uh, you're writing on third wave, coffee, uh, third wave uh, coffee now. What aspect of third wave coffee are you working on right now?
1: Well, having given you that explanation of what third wave coffee is, I'm also trying to point out the, the perils of um, turning what was originally a pretty descriptive um, theory, if you like, of what third wave was, into something that kind of encompasses our understanding of coffee. By which I mean people are very too, I, I believe now are too quick to fail to understand that just because we have a third wave of coffee, that doesn't mean that we still are actually dominated by that first wave of commodity coffee. What happens in the coffee world is still driven by that, particularly when we move away from understanding a kind of, if you like uh, and a a kind of Anglo-American, Westo-centric version of coffee, which is based on consumption, and start thinking about production. Because in terms of what's happened to coffee producers, in terms of their livelihoods, actually, you know, these waves have not been beneficial. Uh, So right at the heart of the 2000s came the worst ever Uh, coffee price crisis, where coffee prices were really below the price of production for about four years, led to a lot of people uh, leaving the coffee industry, a lot of uh, starvation. Um, It's still about that commodity level at that point. So that's the first issue. The second issue is about the coffee house and the kind of, you know, the Starbucks format. And, you know, a force for good, a force for bad. Uh, third wave coffee tends to position itself very much against that. And that's fine. And uh, I would agree. I, I I prefer third wave coffee myself. But um, in terms of what will change the market for coffee and the understanding for coffee, it's actually been that coffee shop format that really has done that. Because it's that export of that format around the world it's aspirational elements uh, that is popular to that popularization and is leading to a further popularization of coffee in new markets where coffee hasn't been before so the biggest growth in coffee consumption right now is in uh, asia uh and a lot of that really is aspirational consumption uh it's using the coffee house in the same ways that we see in uh America and Europe, so the coffee house is a centre for socialisation, particularly amongst the very young, amongst the student population, and um, that's important because by driving up consumption, we have the possibility of bringing consumption and demand back into balance within the coffee economy, and by doing that, we end up in a position where those people who are producing coffee have a better chance of actually getting a living from that coffee.
0: See. And um, at the end of the book, Jonathan, you also include some recipes. Where uh, <laughs> do these recipes come from? I mean, why did you choose them? Is there a, sort of a story behind them? There's a story behind, uh, behind most of them. Uh, some
1: of them were to demonstrate uh, particular ways in which coffee was used. So if we uh, one of the recipes that I have in there is one for uh, coffee ice cream, but it's from Lescoffier. And I was just interested, to be honest, in the way that they used coffee, uh, the way that Escoffier used coffee and uh, was the awareness of coffee. One is, um, I'm trying to remember what's in there. Yes, one is uh, kind of the use of coffee in punch and this idea of Irish coffee. And um, we have a variety there. So really, it's about trying to understand the different ways through the recipes in which coffee was actually thought of and the different sort of roles and thoughts that it played. So um, Irish coffee is quite funny in the sense that uh, I think the story around Irish coffee is goes something like that there was a plane that came into Shannon in Ireland from the states. I believe it was it was very late and um, a bartender sort of gave the uh, the arriving customers, um, this sort of, you know, basically the Irish coffee. So this is a mixture of of uh, whiskey and coffee, and um, somebody on the plane said, "Oh, where's your coffee from Brazil?" And he said, "No, Ireland." So this created this sort of notion of the Irish coffee. Um, the the fun thing with the recipes is just actually understanding where some of them come from. So the one that also struck me a lot,
0: uh, Amelia, was tiramisu uh you know i actually like followed followed your recipe of tiramisu the other day you did, Jonathan. How yes, did it go? yes it went fantastic oh i'm so yeah I, I absolutely recommend that to our listeners
1: <laughs> okay well that's that's brilliant because that that is supposedly the original tiramisu recipe and i was fascinated because i mean the other thing with that is that's a relatively new recipe uh quite a lot of the coffee uh you know some some of what now is rooted in coffee culture is actually relatively new. I think that comes from about the 1970s to Rumisu.
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh, and to wrap up the interview, uh, Jonathan, I'd like to ask whether you're working on something right now, I mean, apart from what you described uh, on, on your third yeah, wave coffee sure. project, or are you thinking about doing your research on a particular topic in a near future? So, I
1: mean, I've been doing various things since the book. I um, I will shamelessly say that I produced uh, with um, a professional podcaster, produced a a six-part, seven-part series, in fact, based on this, on the history of coffee. And um, that started me thinking at the end of it about what we might call decolonizing coffee. Um, And that's one of the areas that I'm interested in. Uh, I have a colleague at the University of Hertfordshire who I've worked with who... Uh, Between us, we're thinking about, well, okay, decolonizing. What would decolonizing look like in the context of coffee and its history? Uh, I'm also doing some work with other colleagues where we're looking at African coffee histories. Uh, We have a project called African Coffee Histories, African Coffee Futures, uh, where we're working with researchers in Africa. And our interest is, in a sense, uh, about, well, what happens when you try and write a narrative of the history of coffee from below in Africa, not from above, but from below. And could that also transform, in a sense, the, uh, the African consumers' notions of coffee? Uh, because coffee outside of Ethiopia is not really very much consumed in Africa. So grown, but not consumed. And that possibly creates the weakness for um coffee growers, in that there isn't a sense by which they have another market to turn to and there isn't an understanding of what coffee actually is or could be so I mean there's a, a very frequently said that many coffee farmers have never tasted their own coffee well part of that is obviously about the understanding of what that coffee is and about the whole ways that it came into being so I'm interested in that and working with our researchers we're working uh, with researchers in Uganda and Rwanda at the moment uh, putting together some projects on that so lots of different projects and collaborations and using really the the remarkable number of worlds that coffee opens and enjoying I have to say Amir uh, as a as a historian, enjoying the fact that from being a historian essentially of uh, one country through transforming to a coffee historian, I can kind of be a historian who can operate on a global and chronological level that, that would previously have been denied to me. Uh, by using this sort of language and understanding of coffee.
0: Hey, okay, that's fascinating. Um, and do you have any further comments? Anything you want to add, Jonathan? Uh,
1: just that I I'd really hope that listeners will go and listen also to my if they're interested. First of all, obviously, uh, do look up the podcast. Just um, just look for a history of coffee podcast series, and put my name to that, and they'll find it.
0: Okay, and I'm going to uh, put a link in the description of this podcast, yes. Uh, Thanks again for talking to me, Jonathan. It was a pleasure talking to you and learning more about your uh, fascinating book and also your fascinating future research. Thank you very much, Amir. It's been a pleasure.